Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. I'm very pleased to have on today Dr. Peter Adamson. Welcome, doctor. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on. I imagine my audience already knows Dr. Adamson from his own podcast, The History of Philosophy with the Gaps. Again, super happy to have you on today, doctor. Uh, before we start today's episode on philosophy and related topics, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. So as listeners who are good at accents can pick up, I'm from the eastern United States. I grew up near Boston, and I have lived in Europe for the last mm, 22 years. I don't know how much that shows in my accent, actually. So I lived in London for 12 years, where I was a philosopher at the philosophy department at King's College London. And in 2012, I moved to the LMU in Munich. So that's my current job. I'm actually still connected to the King's department in London, but my main job is here in Munich. And I'm a professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy at the LMU. Excellent. Excellent. And um, again, super happy to have you on. So, uh, you know, without taking too much more time, I just wanted to go ahead and get started. Um, so what is, what is philosophy? What are its origins? What types of questions do its practitioners seek to address? How do they go about answering them? And I guess, what are the important figures and, and schools when we talk about philosophy? Yeah, it turns out that's a pretty difficult question to answer. So at first blush, you'd think it's just the Arabic word for philosophy, right? You might already think, well, there must be more to it than that because there's other words we might be tempted to translate as philosophy, like hikmah, which can also be translated as wisdom. But the word falsafa, as you can hear, even if you don't speak Arabic, is based on the Greek word philosophia, right? So it's a, what's sometimes called a loan word or a calc. So it's a, um, just a Greek word that's been rendered into Arabic letters almost. And I think that's actually a good place to start thinking about what falsafa was, because at least initially, it very specifically meant doing philosophy in a way that was an engagement with Greek scientific and philosophical works like Aristotle and Platonic works and so on. So at least initially, philosophy refers pretty specifically to whatever these guys are doing who are interested in works that were translated from Greek into Arabic. So in terms of chronology, we're thinking here about basically the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. The first major figure would be Al-Kindi, who's in the 9th century, so he dies around 870. Um, the next major figure, who's a couple of generations after him, would be Al-Farabi, who lives well into the 10th century. And then we have Gensina, who's often called Avicenna in English, because that's what he was called in Latin. So he dies in 1037. And then even later than that, we have Ibn Rushd, who's often called the Barrowes. So again, that's the Latin name. And he writes these long commentaries on Aristotle. So he's still doing what we could describe as philosophy in this sense. So philosophy as an engagement with Greek philosophy, basically, but not Greek philosophy being read in Greek because someone like Ibn Rushd or Al-Farabi didn't know Greek. What they're reading is Arabic translations of Greek works, right? And so actually, this, is, this gives rise to a, a pretty popular common conception about philosophy in the Islamic world, which is that that's just what philosophy in the Islamic world was. So it's a, 
an engagement with these translated works, especially Aristotle, but also works by Neoplatonists like Plotinus and Proclus. But it turns out to be more complicated than that. So if you think about a work like The Incoherence of the Philosophers, which was written by Al-Ghazali, who died in 1111, the, the title of that work is Tahafud al-Falasifa in Arabic. And falasifa just means people who do falasifa, right? So philosophers, falasifa. And there it's quite clear that when he attacks falasifa or the falasifa, the philosophers, he's pretty much specifically attacking one guy, namely Avicenna or Ibn Sina, right? So he's not really attacking Aristotle, never mind Plotinus, never mind Alkindi, right? That's not the target. The target is really Ibn Sina. And he's not alone in that. So if you then kind of follow the literary trail into like the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries and so on, you see them using the word falsafa to refer basically to the doctrines of Ibn Sina, which are not the same as the doctrines of Aristotle. So Ibn Sina was actually a very self-consciously original figure, which we might get on to talk about more later in the discussion. So it's actually a big difference if you're attacking Ibn Sina or attacking Aristotelian philosophy, even if there's some overlap. And the difference is big enough that when Ibn Rushd rebutted Ghazali's Tahafut by writing the so-called incoherence of the incoherence, Tahafut and Tahafut, several generations later, Ibn Rushd's main complaint or his main response to Ghazali is, well, you keep saying you're attacking Fazafa, but you just keep talking about Avicenna or, or Ibn Sina. Whereas I think that philosophy is Aristotle, right? So you can see that the word is almost shifted meaning there or it's contested what it means. So stepping back from all that, what I would say is that Falsafa spends a couple of centuries, meaning the upshot of the Greek Arabic translation movement and works that are engaging with the, those translations. And then with Messina, it starts meaning something different, which is the thought of one particular philosopher, so one particular very original philosopher who was engaging with Aristotelianism, and that's Ibn Sina. And there are attempts to kind of get back to a more faithfully Aristotelian vision of what philosophy was, like in Ibn Rushd, but that doesn't really succeed. So what really happens is that philosophy continues being basically Avicenna philosophy for many centuries after that. Understood. Thank you so much. And you mentioned, I mean, kind of the Aristotelians, uh, the Neoplatonists. Um, so I guess I should probably ask, I mean, um, were these or any other schools uh, among these? I mean, which schools had a particularly strong influence on Muslim thinkers? And I, but also I wanted to ask, how is the engagement with philosophy different uh, among Muslims um, uh, than among um, practitioners? In okay. Yeah, I mean, I could maybe say a little bit more about the Greek works that are most influential. So for sure, by far, the most influential figure is Aristotle. The translation movement renders pretty much everything we can read by Aristotle into Arabic. So their Aristotle is the same as our Aristotle, but they're reading him in Arabic, whereas we're reading him, I guess, in English or, or French or German or whatever our native language is, or the original Greek if we can. So uh, like I said, most of those scholars would not have been able to read Greek, right? Except for the original translators. Even Kindi, who's working together with Greek Arabic translators, he himself doesn't seem to have known Greek. So he's just sort of helping the works get translated and maybe improving them by fixing up the Arabic style or whatever, but he's not himself a translator. 
So Aristotle's way ahead of everyone else. And that's not unusual, right? So Aristotle is the most important philosopher in all of the traditions that go back to antiquity for like the better part of 2000 years. So whether you're in Byzantium or Latin Christendom or the Arabic speaking world, whether you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian or whatever, everyone thinks that philosophy is basically Aristotelianism, okay? But the word basically there is doing a lot of work because the Aristotelianism that they're pursuing is modified from our point of view in various ways. Obviously, they've started to bring in all of these concerns that come from Abrahamic religion. Like, for example, can you square Aristotle's portrayal of God with the idea of a creator God? Can you squeeze out of Aristotle the idea that the soul is immortal and can survive the death of the body and so on? Uh, but your other question actually has something to do with this as well, because in late antiquity, that's really, so, and when I say late antiquity, I mean sort of like from, let's say the third to the sixth century CE, okay? So that's actually not that long before the Arabic translation movement, right? Because I said, as I said, that happened to the eighth, ninth, 10th century. So it's only a couple of hundred years earlier that, that we have um, the late antique tradition of commentary on Aristotle. And those commentaries are basically written by Platonists. You might wonder, well, why are they commenting on Aristotle if they're Platonists? And the answer is because they think Aristotle is more introductory than Plato. So you basically give, as I always say, this is a little bit of a cliche and oversimplification, but basically you give Aristotle to undergraduates and Plato is for grad students, right? So that means that um, they write these commentaries which are basically teaching guides to Aristotle to some extent. And what that means is that the Aristotle that's transmitted to the medieval traditions, not just the Arabic speaking one, but also the Greek speaking one in Byzantium and the Latin speaking one in Latin Christendom, there's always a kind of Platonist spin that's already been imparted to Aristotle's works. For example, it's almost universally assumed that Aristotle did think that the human soul can survive the death of the body. That's like, no, no one would, would really dispute that in the medieval period until like the Renaissance, they start wondering whether that's true. Um, and even, and the Neoplatonists have also like tried to find ways to get that idea to work that Aristotle's God is somehow an efficient cause that's actually making the universe exist. That's something you already find in pagan Neoplatonism. Uh, and also they're reading works by Neoplatonists like Plotinus and Proclus in Arabic translation. One famous thing is that the Arabic translation of Plotinus was actually thought to be by Aristotle. So they thought it was the translation of Aristotle and they called it the theology of Aristotle because it was this book called The Theology and they thought it was by Aristotle. It's not quite clear how many important philosophers really believed that it was by Aristotle, but it certainly circulated under his name. So for that reason as well, you get a, a very heady mixture of Platonist and Aristotelian philosophy which is really the kind of the core of the Fasifa tradition in terms of what it's reacting to. And then the reactions take many forms because people like Kendi and Farabi and Sina are very creative philosophers as well. They're not just slavishly following the Greek tradition. Thank you so much for that. And I, I kind of want to, I'm going to ask the first question again, but this time about uh, Kalam, right? So what is Kalam? Uh, what are its origins? And 
what type of questions again, do the practitioners seek to address and how do they go about answering? Okay, so here I, I would, I think what I'm gonna say is maybe a little bit less complicated, but a little bit more controversial. So something that I like to say, and some listeners may have heard me say this before in other places, because I say this a lot, is that if people had gone from the sort of taking the point of view of like modern European historian of philosophy perspective, right? And you kind of went back to medieval Islam and started looking for the philosophical texts. Let's imagine a world in which all of that Aristotle and so on had never been translated, okay? So there was never any Greek translation movements. There's no Kindi, there's no Farabi, there's no Ibn Sina, right? So when the historians of philosophy sort of found what was there, would they have said, oh, there's no philosophy in the Islamic world in the medieval period? No, what they would say is, oh, what we would call philosophy, they called kalam. So kalam usually is translated as theology, partially because people want to contrast it to falsafa, right? So falsafa would be philosophy, kalam would be theology. And there's some reason for that. So the mutakalimun, so people who do kalam are called mutakalimun. So one, one, one theologian is a mutakalim, many of them would be mutakalimun, right? So that just means people who are doing kalam. And the mutakalimun are certainly involved in the religious sciences, right? So they comment on the Quran, they try to explain passages in the Quran. They are usually also trained in Islamic law as well. So they're certainly religious scholars in a way that many philosophers weren't. Uh, even that's complicated because, for example, Rushd was a religious jurist as well as a philosopher. But leaving that aside, these are certainly religious scholars. But the way that they approach the Quranic revelation and everything that comes out of it, so Islam as a whole, the teachings of the Prophet in the Hadith and so on, the way that they approach that is very rationalistic. So for example, they will argue that the first step in theology is to provide rational arguments for the existence of God and also for the existence of prophecy. And then make give like give a good argument that Muhammad was genuinely a prophet, right? So the whole kind of edifice of Islam is already put in place through rational means, right? So you, you give a proof that Islam is really a genuinely revealed religion, like that the Quran is a genuine re revelation. And then having used this uh, kind of rationalist way in, you then can further develop your theology on the basis of the teachings of the Quran. So I think the, the reason I'm emphasizing this is that I think when people hear, oh, there's philosophy and theology, they immediately jump to some idea that there's like reason and faith and the philosophers are doing reason and the Mutakalimun are doing faith, right? But actually that's not a helpful distinction at all in this context, like the reason faith distinction is in some ways really an artifact of the Protestant Reformation, even like in the European tradition, it's not actually that useful to think about reason versus faith, even in medieval Christian philosophy, never in mind in medieval Islamic philosophy. So what I would say is that the Mutakalimun are engaging in a rationalist philosophical way with the Islamic revelation. And that leads them into not only things like proofs for the existence of God or for the necessity of prophethood, but also they get into arguments like the free, a free will controversy. They develop an atomistic physics. They talk about the 
requirements that have to be fulfilled in order for someone to be morally responsible for their action. They talk about occasionalism and whether God creates everything from moment to moment in the universe rather than creating things that have some kind of uh, like existence over time and so on. So you get many familiar philosophical debates and topics being discussed within Kalam in a kind of parallel philosophical tradition to what's going on in Falsafa. The reason I'm saying this is controversial, by the way, is that not everybody agrees that Kalam is such a philosophical tradition. But I, I think that when you look at the whole development of Kalam, you can see that even from its very beginnings, there was a lot of rationalist argument in it. And as I say, the, the whole thing is kind of founded on some kind of rational justification for religious belief. Um, and then as time goes on, you also see the Motikale Moon start to engage in increasingly elaborate ways with what the philosopher were doing, especially with Ibn Sina. So after Ibn Sina, the Motikale Moon say, oh, this is really interesting what this guy is doing. It's kind of problematic in some ways, but we can use a lot of his ideas. We can reject some of his other ideas. And so you get a kind of entangling of these, what you might call two philosophical traditions, one that derives from Aristotle and another that derives from the Quran. The engagement, at least on the Kalam side, I mean, is this, uh, I mean, it seems somewhat independent, that an independent string of, uh, of, of intellectual inquiry, I suppose, but, uh, but there's no reactionary element to it. I mean, they're not reacting to any threats posed by it. I don't know, other uh, or, or falsafa? I think that falsafa was not a threat at first or not perceived as a threat at first simply because it was such a minor phenomenon. And also a lot of the people who were doing falsafa were Christians. So I mentioned Muslim thinkers like Al-Kindi and Al-Farabi, but at least up until the 10th century, a lot of the figures who were associated with this Greek-inspired falsafa were actually Christian translators and Christian scholars who were working with the translations especially in Baghdad, there's this group of Aristotelian philosophers who are associated with, with Al-Farabi. And apart from him, they're all Christians, right? So it might've seemed like it was still a kind of semi-foreign and largely Christian phenomenon until Ibn Sina came along. And then they started thinking, oh wait, this is, this is like potentially really dangerous. So Ghazali says that what um, some of the things that Ibn Sina were, was teaching were countess apostasy and that this is unacceptable and this is like a departure from Islam. But, but he's really the first person to say that about. Understood. And um, uh, I should probably ask now before we kind of move on, who were some of the important figures and what were some of the important schools in uh, the Kalam tradition? Yeah, so the, I mean, of course there's a lot of them. And, and I, something else I always emphasize is that Kalam is a much more culturally dominant phenomenon than Fasifa. So Fasifa, especially early on, is like, a few guys reading Aristotle, basically, and reading Plotinus, whatever. Whereas um, Kalam is like the major intellectual way of debating these topics in Islam, right? So if the free will debate is not primarily a debate that's responding to Greek texts, it's primarily a debate within Kalam. So uh, to make a long story short, you basically have two schools, or schools is probably too strong, but two kind of groups or traditions. First, you have the Mu'tazila, who come around in around the eighth century. And uh, to some extent, the early Mu'tazila, like Abu Uthel and Al-Azam and so on, they are people we group together in retrospect, or rather, they're people who were grouped together in retrospect by later philosophers or later theologians, like uh, people who kind of collected religious opinions. These early thinkers, their works are lost 
And so we depend on these later reports to know what they thought. And generally speaking, the Mu'tazila are distinguished by a couple of main doctrines, which are summarized in their nickname. So they're called the Tawheed Wal Adl, which means the people of unity and justice. So Tawheed, unity, means God's unity. So they put a lot of stress on God's, not only his uniqueness, but also his simplicity. And that leads them to deny the reality of divine attributes that are somehow different from God's essence. So the basic idea here is that if you take a property of God, like let's say God's wisdom or God's power, the Mu'atazila will say that there is no power in God that is distinct from God himself. And there's no knowledge in God or wisdom in God that is distinct from God himself. So all you've got is God. You don't have God plus his attributes. The word for attributes in Arabic is sifat. So this is about the, the problem of the sifat. So that's one of their primary positions. Another of their primary positions is connected to their other uh, kind of part of the slogan, adl, meaning justice. So they're the people of God's justice. And that means that they think that, um, that humans are in a position to understand what the requirements of justice are and therefore to understand how God must operate as a just God. So for example, they would say that God cannot punish his creatures for doing things wrong unless they had the opportunity to act otherwise. Right? So if someone, let's say, commits a murder, they have to have been able to avoid committing this act of killing in order for God to justly punish them for killing someone. Right? which kind of makes sense, right? So that's intuitive, right? Like if I couldn't have done anything otherwise, then how can God justly punish me? So, I mean, that's, and actually that's a good example of a position that might sound primarily theological because it's about, you know, what is God's relationship to us and how does he punish us? And that's true, but it's also clearly a philosophical position, right? So you're saying that the moral law is somehow accessible to human reason independently of revelation, actually. So you don't have to wait for the Quran to tell you what's right and wrong. You can tell what's right and wrong just by reflecting rationally. And they're also making a very robust philosophical claim about the conditions of moral responsibility, right? So if you're not free to act otherwise, then you don't count as morally responsible. So that's the Mu'tazila. Then you have the Asharites or the Ashariya. And they are a reaction against the Mu'tazila to a large extent. So their founder, Al-Ashari, who's in the 10th century CE, uh, so that would be the fourth century of the Islamic calendar, he was a Mu'tazila theologian who kind of turned against his teachers and their, and their doctrines. So, and he kind of flips everything that I just said. So whereas the Mu'tazila denied the reality of divine attributes distinct from God's essence, he says, no, that we do need this, these attributes. And on the question of moral responsibility and freedom and justice and so on, he says that effectively, he says, who are we to say what God can do and what he can't do or what he's allowed to do or what he's not allowed to do. He far transcends our judgments. In fact, what's right and wrong is right and wrong because God says it's right and wrong. So this is sometimes called the divine command theory of justice. So instead of admitting that we can tell like through reason what's right and what's wrong, he would say, no, God determines what's right and what's wrong. And so if God wanted to punish people uh, 
without giving them the opportunity to act. Otherwise, he could have done that. He can send all of the sinners to heaven. He can send all the good people to hell, right? It's up to God. He can do whatever he wants. Of course, that's not what he actually does. So what he actually does is he sends the sinners to hell and he sends the good people to paradise. But he does that because he chooses to arbitrarily or like of his own free will. So you have this very strong contrast within Kalan between um, the Mu'atazala on the one hand, who have this very kind of rigorous simplicity, uh, this very rigorous doctrine of divine simplicity and this very rationalist ethical theory on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have the Asharites who have a more kind of uh, generous theory of divine attributes and are thus able to maybe like uh, take more seriously or more literally some of the things that are said about God in the Quran, although certainly not everything is said about God in the Quran because they would take some things to be non-literal. And then they have a much more kind of, uh, their position on God's action is like, we should just be awestruck and awestruck and kind of fall down in, in amazement at God's majesty and just worship him. Um, and not kind of try to constrain him with our own moral intuitions. So you get a very strong contrast, even within Kalam itself. It's not like they all think the same thing. Anusha, thank you for that. And um, so you touched upon this a bit earlier, but how are Falasov and Kalam similar and how are they different? How, uh, how did each group, I guess, uh, receive the other? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. And it, of course, in some ways, it's an evolving uh, issue because like I said early on, like before Ibn Sina, Falsafa is at, at best trying to maybe like touch on some of the things that Kalam is talking about, but using completely different resources because they're thinking all in terms of like whatever they could get out of the translation movement. So you have these really separate um, traditions that kind of touch on each other only glancingly. What the and if you ask people at that point, what is the relationship between these two traditions? The Mutakalimun would say, well, we are following God's revelation and these philosophers are not. The philosophers are using this foreign Greek science and we don't really understand why. <laughs> why, why are they doing this, right? Um, whereas uh, the philosophers would say that the are arguing in a purely what they would call a dialectical way. So what that means is that they're arguing on the basis of things they just assume to be true rather than argue on the basis of like proper demonstrations or proofs, okay? I think the Mutakalimun would not have agreed with that. They would say, no, we're giving proper proofs. Like we argue from necessary premises and so on. But the philosophers, you find this in both Al-Farabi and in Rushd, they love to say that the theologians are only arguing on the basis of assumptions that they haven't proven, so that it's all dialectical. Then things change a bit after Ibn Sina, because like I say, Ibn Sina himself is like really responding very directly to Kalam in a lot of ways. Like he takes over some of their terminology and he's making a really uh, concerted effort to show that you can use Greek inspired philosophy to deal with all of the issues that Mutakalimun had been dealing with. Akindi and Farabi had already sort of made gestures in that direction, but they aren't really succeeding in like talking to the Mutakalimun in a way that they'll appreciate. Whereas Insina in his vocabulary and the topics that he uh, tackles, he really manages to do that. 
Um, so that's a big difference because after Ibn Sina, he's seen as both a kind of opportunity and a threat. So he's an opportunity because he's brought in this much more uh, kind of philosophically powerful way of dealing with a lot of the issues that the Mutakalimun were interested in. So for example, they really like his proof for the existence of God, right? And they start to talk a lot about whether it works and whether it has to be fixed up in various ways. Um, so he's an opportunity, but he's also a threat because he follows philosophical arguments in some directions that they really don't like. For example, he thinks that the universe is eternal rather than having been created with a first moment of time. He famously says that God doesn't know particulars as such. He only knows particulars in a universal way, whatever that means. There's a big debate about what that means. Um, he seems to deny the resurrection of the body and so on. So there's, a, there's several things that Ibn Sina is committed to that are either problematic or outright unacceptable from the point of view of Mutakalim. And so they have this very complicated kind of relationship with him in the subsequent centuries. And Ghazali would be a really good example of that. But again, it's not the only example. And I do kind of want to get into how uh, to some of these very fundamental uh, uh, questions, the difference between um, uh, and Kalam. But kind of before we get to that, I wanted to ask, uh, how did non-Muslims in Muslim world areas engage with and contribute to the study of philosophy? Yeah, that's a, a great example, uh, or sorry, a great question, because I, that's something I try to emphasize a lot when I talk about philosophy in this culture. So I actually always call it philosophy in the Islamic world instead of calling it Islamic philosophy. And one reason for that, the main reason for that, is that the tradition includes a lot of Christians and Jews. So something that I've touched on already is that there were a lot of Christians involved in the translation movement from Greek into Arabic. In fact, almost all the translators were Christian. And this is for historical reasons, as you might imagine. So the, the idea is that there are a bunch of Christian scholars who are still capable of working with Greek sources because that had been preserved through the Greek monastic traditions and so, tradition and so on. So you have these Christian scholars who can read Greek and then they translate from Greek either into Syriac, which is another Semitic language. So it's related to Arabic or directly into Arabic. Um, and then it's not just the translators, it's also, for example, that group of Aristotelians in the 10th century. So people like Yaakov and Adi, for example, colleague of Farabis, who writes a lot of philosophical works and also works on uh, Christian apologetics. And later on, there's the so-called Syriac Renaissance in around the 12th century, where you have uh, kind of, in a, in a kind of surprising way, you have this kind of resurgence of intellectual work being done in Syriac on theology and other topics, including philosophy. So you have a figure like Baruch Hebreus, who's a Christian thinker who writes in Syriac, but is using a lot of material from philosophical works that were in Arabic that are broadly in the tradition of Ibn Sina. So there's this, con this, like this ongoing engagement between Christian and Muslim intellectuals throughout this whole period. When it comes to Jews, something similar is true, except that I think in the case of Judaism, the direction of influence tends to be more one way because the Jewish scholars often write either in Hebrew or in Arabic, but using Hebrew letters. 
which means that their texts are literally un unreadable for non-Jews, right? So you have to be able to read the Hebrew alphabet. Um, but it's still the case that uh, Jewish philosophers in the Middle Ages mostly live in the Islamic world, right? There are some Jewish philosophers who lived in Byzantium and in Latin Christendom. But if we're talking about like from the, let's say, eighth to the 12th centuries CE, where most Jewish philosophy is mostly a phenomenon that is happening within the Islamic world. So you have a figure like Sa'adi Agam, who lives from the 9th to the 10th century. He's originally from Egypt, but he was to Iraq. And he's very strongly influenced by Islamic Kalam, actually. So he follows the Mu'atazila on a lot of issues, for example. Or then you have a lot of Jewish philosophers in Islamic Spain, including the greatest medieval Jewish philosopher, perhaps the greatest Jewish philosopher of all time, uh, my mom, who is very strongly influenced by Aristotle and Al-Farabi. So he's a contemporary of uh, Ibn Rushd. He dies within a few years of Ibn Rushd. And he's from Muslim Spain, although he actually moves with his family elsewhere and winds up in Cairo. Um, and you have a, a whole bunch of other philosophers, Jewish philosophers in, in Islamic Spain. Uh, so the study of medieval Jewish philosophy in a way, not, not entirely, but to a large extent, is just like part of the study of philosophy in the Islamic world. So for example, in my podcast, I've covered many, many Jewish philosophers. So from Philo of Alexandria all the way up to, I've gotten to some Jewish philosophers of the Renaissance, but I think still the majority of the Jewish philosophers I've covered were people who lived in the, in the Islamic world. So we can kind of move on to, um, I guess, a series of six, questions, and I'm just hoping, uh, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure uh, how useful this exercise would be, but the idea that has kind of some benefit in showing us different uh, modes of thinking and ways of understanding um, some of these basic things that people ask. Um, so how might these two words and, uh, you know, the philosopher um, answer some of these basic questions? The first being the existence of God. Right. So, exist. of course, everyone thinks that God exists, right? So there's no, there's no atheists in this culture that I know of. The question, therefore, is not whether God exists, but can you prove that he exists? Also, they're all, they're all monotheists as well, right? So they even agree that there's one God. So the question is not even, actually, the question isn't even whether you can prove it. The question is, what's the best way to prove it? And generally speaking, there's two ways one, which is often called the Kalam argument, even by contemporary philosophers of religion who don't work on Islamic philosophy, um, is basically that you, you somehow find a way to show that the universe started to exist. And then you say, well, if something starts to exist, then it needs a cause. So that's God, right? So that's the Kalam approach to proving God's existence. Then you have philosophical ways of proving God's existence. And what these have in common is usually that the philosophers are at least open to the idea that the universe is eternal. So actually, most of them don't think that. There's a kind of myth that most philosophers believe that the universe was eternal or is eternal. So, and they thought that because Aristotle thought it basically. But actually, if you kind of look through the record, a lot of philosophers do not believe that. So it, the famous ones do. So Farabi probably believed that. Ibn Sina certainly did, and Ibn Rushd probably did, or I guess certainly did. But for example, Akindi, who's the very first philosopher, or the very first philosoph, the very first person to do philosophy, he explicitly says that the universe is not eternal. And so does Saadia, for example, a Jewish philosopher. Maimonides says it's hard to tell. 
and in a way it doesn't matter because you can prove that God exists either way, but, but eventually he concludes that the universe is not eternal. So most philosophers actually don't think the universe is eternal, but they tend to give arguments that would for, for the existence of God that would still work if the universe is eternal. So they don't need to prove that the universe began with a first moment in time. And what these arguments usually have in common is that they invoke God as the end of some kind of causal regress. So to explain like what, what all causes trace back to as a first cause, we need God to kind of stop that series of causal explanation. And of course that goes back to Aristotle. Um, and, a, and a specific version of that is found in Zena. And to make a long story short, because I've talked about this a lot of other times on other podcasts and so on. So people have probably heard me go through it. But the basic idea is that he, he assumes that the universe is contingent, meaning that it might either exist or not exist. And then he argues that you need a necessary existence in order to cause the contingent world to exist rather than not existing. So again, it's a kind of causal explanation argument. Um, actually, if you think about it, both the Kalam way of going and the Fasifa way of going both turn on the idea of God as a cause, right? So everyone sort of agrees that you can rationally argue for God's existence by reasoning from the existence of the universe to God as the cause of that existence. The question is how exactly do you do it and do you need to assume that the universe begins? And that's really what separates the Kalam approach from the Fasifa approach. Um, and what about the nature of God? Yeah, that there's a lot of dispute over. And this is actually where Ibn Sina really annoys the Mutakarimun. So Ibn Sina uh, says that because God is a necessary existence, as I just mentioned, we need to avoid associating anything with God that could have been otherwise. So not only does God exist necessarily, but everything about God is necessary. So for example, it's necessary that he creates the universe, which is why the universe is eternal, right? Because if it's necessary, it has to always be there. And in general, God cannot do or decide or know anything that could have been otherwise. Whereas the Mutakalimun want to say that God is a freely acting agent, right? So they think that God is generous, that he creates the universe when he didn't need to create the universe, um, especially the Asherites, right? Because if you think back to what I was saying about the Asherites before, they don't even think that God is constrained by morals, right? So they've really emphasized God's contingency and his voluntary nature, right? God is basically like a big decider <laughs> in the Asherite uh, position. Uh, whereas for Ibn Sina, God is more like a necessitating natural force that gives rise to the universe. He would still say that God is a, a voluntary agent, but when he explains what he means by that, he explains it in a way that the Kalam God would not accept because he basically says, well, there's nothing forcing him to create the world. So he counts as voluntary. And they say, that's not good enough. To for him to be voluntary, he has to be making a choice between alternatives. And he denies that. Again, by the way, notice how philosophical that dispute is. So even today, philosophers who have nothing to do with theology or religion or whatever disagree about whether free will requires choosing between alternatives. So some say yes, some say no. The Mutakalimun say yes, and the, and the philosophers say no, or at least the Sina and his followers say no. Um, and what about prophets, prophethood, and prophecy? 
that's important actually uh, for both Jewish and Muslim philosophers, right? In fact, a lot of, all, really all of these questions you're asking me, they have a discussion, there's a rich discussion about them in Jewish and Christian philosophy as well as um, Islamic philosophy. But to stick with the Muslims, um, because you're asking me to kind of compare and contrast Kalam and Falsafa. So of course, the philosophers say there are prophets. They agree that there are prophets. Um, they, they also tend to give reasons why there need to be prophets that look a lot like the Mutakalimun's reasons. So in both Kalam and Falsafa, you get the idea that prophets have to be sent by God for the benefit of the people, right? To teach them the truth and to teach them good behavior and so on. So you'd find that in Farabi and in Sina, as well as in Kalam, especially in Mu'tazabite Kalam. Um, one difference comes with uh, some philosophers who additionally suggest that whatever the prophet is saying is something that we kind of could have figured out anyway, using philosophy. It's just that he's phrasing it in a way that's more kind of appealing or convincing for normal people. So like if you give an Aristotelian argument or demonstration for something to a normal person, they'll be like, dude, what are you talking about? Whereas if you give them the Quran, they'll be very impressed, right? It's poetic, it, um, it's beautiful, and it has this powerful imagery and, and so memorable, right? In a way that these dry philosophical arguments wouldn't be. So quite a few philosophers, um, for example, Al-Farabi and Al-Rushd will say that um, effectively, what a prophetic revelation does is it presents the truths of philosophy in a way that's more engaging. Okay, so so the difference between that and the and kalam is that kalam would be more open to the idea that some of the things that are revealed are things you could never have known otherwise. Right, not the existence of God. Right, so as we already saw. Would say that you can prove the existence of God using a rational argument. They would even say that you can prove the need of, of prophethood using reason. They would say that you can verify that Muhammad is a prophet using reason. But for something like, let's say, having to pray five times a day instead of four or six, that's something you just have to be told in the revelation. So that's a difference. Um, but even there, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily draw that difference too strongly because, for example, Maimonides makes a very similar point about prophecy, that some of the things it teaches are kind of arbitrary decisions, like, you know, for example, dietary laws in Judaism. He says, well, you could use reason to see that it's good for us to have some kind of dietary restrictions to teach us self-control, but what exactly the, the self, what exactly the dietary restrictions need to be like don't eat pork or shellfish, for example, that's something that you would only get from Revelation. Kind of on that, on that same note, what about the Quran and other divine scriptures? Yeah, so I mean, actually what I just said about um, prophethood basically already gives you the answer to this question about the Quran, because the Quran is the content of prophecy, right? So it's what was prophetically revealed to Muhammad. Uh, it's more complicated, of course, because of Hadith, so the hadith are not supposed to be a revelatory text as such, but they still have this special religious status because we are told as Muslims to imitate Muhammad, the prophet in all things. Um, so there's a kind of 
complicated situation in uh, Islam because you have the Quran plus the Hadith and they have slightly different statuses, but they're still both sources of religious law and belief. Um, but what I said about Farabi and Ibn Rushd, thinking that prophecy is a kind of uh, gift to rhetorically present the truth that can also be discovered by reason, they would apply that to the Quran. So Ibn Rushd says explicitly in this work called Fasl al-Makkah, which means Taisa Treatise, he says that philosophers are the people who are in the best position to know what the Quran teaches and what the Quran means because they already know what's true on the basis of philosophical arguments. So they can kind of check any interpretation of the Quran against what they already know is true anyway by using philosophy. So he thinks philosophers are the best interpreters of the Quran for that reason. Um, and then again, something touched on as well, uh, resurrection. Yeah, this, this now would be a point of greater potential conflict. So again, some philosophers are perfectly happy to go along with like mainstream Muslim orthodox belief. So for example, Kindi has a passage where he explicitly says that our bodies will be resurrected by God eventually. But generally speaking, the philosophical approach to the afterlife is very much based on the idea that our intellectual capacity or rational soul, as they call it, will survive the death of the body. So when you die, you'll still be able to think. That's their idea. You won't be able to see or you know, eat or imagine because you imagine things using your brain, but you can still think because thinking is an immaterial activity, they argue. So it's something you'd still be able to do once you're dead or once you've got had gone through bodily death. Whereas the Mutakalimun obviously emphasized the resurrection of the body. And one of the more controversial things about Imcina is that he doesn't really think the resurrection of the body makes any sense. Um, and he actually has arguments where he tries to show that it does, it's really not possible for God to resurrect exactly the same body later on. Um, so that would be a, a serious tension potentially between uh, Kalam and Falsafa. Um, and then finally, uh, how one knows truth. So this is basically epistemology, right? So how do we know anything? And uh, I would say that in this case, there is a, at first glance, kind of similar position between the two groups because they're both going to take uh, an epistemological theory, so a theory of knowledge that we would nowadays call foundationalist. So what that means, a foundationalist theory of knowledge means that you start out with some first principles or premises or assumptions or propositions, and then those are certainly true, and then you build everything else up on top of them. So a good model for this would be like, Euclid's axiomatic way of doing mathematics. So you start off with some assumptions and you're like, well, these are obviously true. And then I use these to prove other things. And you have that idea in both Aristotle and in Kalam. So in Kalam, they talk about necessary knowledge. Um, so the word for necessary there is doruri. So ilm adururi means necessary knowledge. And you can get from like sensation, for example. So for example, like if I'm like looking at the bottle of water in front of me on the table here, can't see it, but there's a bottle of water in front of me. I have necessary knowledge that there's a bottle of water in front of me. And similarly, Aristotelians talk about first principles that are obviously true. Like 
of one of their favorite examples is that the whole is greater than the part, but also something like humans are animals might be a first principle. And then you can use these principles to generate further principles, uh, or sorry, you can use these principles to generate further propositions. So things that you prove on the basis of the first principles. The difference though, is that in Fasafa, you have this very elaborately developed theory of logic, which is based on Aristotle's logical works. Whereas in early Kalam, you have some kind of reflection on logic, but it's more informal. So they're usually more working with examples and not generating an abstract system of logic. Like they don't write entire works about logic as the philosophy do. Um, but that then changes with Sina. So Sina comes in and like other Satellians have done, he writes works that are explicitly about logic. So they're really about the question of how do I go from first principles to generate more arguments uh, and more propositions by using valid syllogistic arguments, right? So if I have like, for example, if I have all A's are B's and all B's are C's, then I can infer that all A's are C's, right? So that's a very simple example, but that would be a valid uh, syllogism. Or if A then B and A therefore B. So that's uh, again, a very simple uh, argument that would be valid in his logic and everybody's logic. And the uh, Mutakalimun then in one of many examples where they take over ideas from Sina, they absorb this logic and start to teach logic. So in the, let's say 13th, 14th centuries, if you go to a madrasa, one of the things you're gonna learn is logic. And even opponents of Falsafa like Ghazali, he says explicitly in one of his works that people who think that logic is not a good idea or is a waste of time are just being stupid. Right? So it's silly to reject logic. Logic's obviously a good thing. We should all learn how to argue validly and rationally. And that's what logic does. So this is good. They all like that. Um, they don't always like the content of the philosophical arguments, but they definitely like the idea of analyzing arguments as such and showing which arguments are valid and which are not. But still like in the broader picture, their epistemologies had always been very similar because they were both foundationalist. And so I think that's probably one reason why Kalam was able to like integrate philosophical logic so quickly because the overall theory of knowledge was so similar. For the philosopher and the Mutakalimun, who are their intended audiences? And do they have a range of audiences? For example, would Ibn Sina have been writing for philosophers and others as well? Okay, well, that's a difficult question in a way. In a way, it's easy. So we often know who the immediate addressee is of a philosophical work because many of them are addressed either to students or patrons. And this is especially true of Ibn Sina. So with his, some of his works are even named after the patron that he's writing for. So for example, um, the one work that he wrote in Persian, the Danish Name, is actually, uh, its, full, its full title is actually mentions the name of the patron um, for whom he wrote it. Uh, or he wrote another work called Philosophy for Arudi, so Arudi is the addressee. Kendi also earlier, his works are on philosophy are all written in the form of letters or epistles which are addressed to various patrons and colleagues. And so sometimes we know exactly who he's writing to. Um, Ibn Sina also writes a lot for his students. So um, in fact, one of his students wrote a biography of him where he explains exactly why Ibn Sina wrote all of his different works. And in many cases is because this biographer and other students of Ibn Sina asked him, will you please write a work on such and such, or will you please write a work of such and such a character? 
and Messina sometimes said yes and sometimes said no. So um, those are, I would say, the two usual like official addressees. So you've got patrons and students, and that's probably pretty much accurate in the sense that they're either writing for like a wide aristocratic audience, namely the patrons and potential patrons, or they're writing for students who are already committed to the idea of learning about philosophy. The, the, the only thing is, the reason I'm being a little hesitant is that, you know, if, you, if a philosopher writes a work for a patron, then it's obviously not just for that one guy, right? Because if it was, we probably wouldn't have a copy of it anymore, for one thing, because like, so it would be one, of the, one, one, uh, like one copy, one manuscript, it would go to the patron and then it would be an extraordinary coincidence if we managed to hold on to uh, that copy or a copy of that copy. So I think we have to assume that even works that are addressed to a specific patron were usually intended to be disseminated more widely. Um, so for example, with Al-Kindi, most of his philosophical works that survive are in a single manuscript and they collect together a whole bunch of his letters, his philosophical letters. And I can't imagine that that's because someone at some point went around to all these patrons and said, oh, I'm collecting Al-Kindi's letters. Will you please let me have your, let me have, make a copy of your letter that you received? No, he must have kept copies himself and they must have um, been kind of creating a kind of collected works of Al-Kindi, which then was partially able to survive in the manuscript that we have. I'm guessing there, obviously, but I think that's the only thing that makes sense really. So in general, though, I, I would say that the, the works that we're talking about are aimed either at colleagues, so other philosophers or other theologians in the case of Kalan, or rich people who maybe a, a broader like audience of rich people who are literate and interested in these kinds of issues and want to maybe debate them at court or debate them in learned circles and that sort of thing. Thank you for that. So what's the decline narrative and what do contemporary scholars think about it? Right, so the decline narrative is a kind of story that was still quite popular when I was a student. So like when I was in grad school, this was pretty much what I was taught. Um, and it was what everyone thought at the time or what a lot of people thought at the time, at least in the European uh, academic world. So it's basically that philosophy is going along and you have the translation movements, like I said, and then you have someone like Ibn Rushd in the 12th century still commenting on Aristotle, and then it just ends. So he's, he dies in 1198, right at the end of the 12th century, and we don't really see more engagement with philosophy after that. So there's this very sharp and sudden decline of philosophy in or after the 12th century. One idea might be that this is something about Ghazali because he writes the incoherence of the philosophers and everyone's like, oh, the philosophers are full of mistakes. We shouldn't do philosophy anymore. <laughs> Oops. Uh, so he maybe kills philosophy. So that would be one idea. That's a pretty unconvincing suggestion, I would say. Um, a more convincing idea might be that, that the Mongols invade the Islamic world in the 13th century. So you might think, oh, well, that would be quite a shattering social political event. Lots of people got killed, lots of scholars were killed. So that would have been bound to disrupt intellectual activity. And there's even some truth to that, actually. Um, but one way or the other, the decline narrative basically has it that philosophy has this kind of 
amazing golden age from like the ninth to the 12th century, basically from Kindi to Rushd, and then it suddenly stops. And that maybe that's connected with a more general decline in the Islamic world. So science and philosophy and so on kind of falls off the map. And after doing all these amazing things in astronomy and mathematics and medicine, whatever, uh, after the 12th century, they kind of fall apart and don't do anything else ever again. And Europe goes on, Europe, which was in the dark ages, right? Because in exactly this period from the 9th to the 12th century, sort of takes on the torch of knowledge and they go through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And the result is that we have the powerful, scientifically advanced European societies way ahead of the Islamic societies, right? You can kind of tell from the way I'm setting this up that I don't agree with it. <laughs> so that's, that's the story. Um, now, I actually think the first thing to understand about the story is where it comes from originally. And where it comes from is European scholars whose access to philosophy in the Islamic world was mostly through Latin translations of Arabic philosophical works. So we've got another translation movement. So just as a lot of Greek philosophy and science was translated into Arabic in the ninth century, a lot of Arabic philosophy and science was translated into Latin in the 12th century. And it, that Latin translation movement really ends around 1200, so around the same time that Rush died. And it wasn't able to include works of authors who lived further east, right? Because they hadn't gotten over to Spain and Italy where the translations were being made. So the thinkers who get translated are basically like Kendi, Farabi, and especially Ibn Sina and Rushd, who then come to be called Avicenna and Averroes in Latin and have a massive influence on medieval Latin philosophy. So they're always being quoted by people like Aquinas and Scotus and whatever. Uh, so from the point of view of a European scholar, especially one who reads Latin and not Arabic, or who doesn't have good access to manuscripts collections in the, in the Islamic world, it's very easy to think, oh, philosophy ends in 1200 or so, because that, those are the last times, that's the last time that we see any works being brought into Europe into Latin translation. But of course, right? Because that's when the Latin translation movement happened. So anything that happened too far to the East in that period or later, like in the 13th, 14th century, or even after that was not translated into Latin. And so it became kind of invisible to the European tradition. So that's really, I think where the narrative um, of the of decline came from in the first place. It's kind of an optical illusion created by the Arabic Latin translation movement. And now I think that at least most experts in the field understand that that's wrong, that is kind of a myth, and that there was actually a lot of philosophical activity or at least theological activity with a lot of philosophical stuff included in it happening in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries and so on. And even later, like when you have the Muslim world kind of split into the Ottoman, the Safavid and the Mughal kingdoms or empires, these are all cultures where you have quite a lot of philosophy being done. And not just philosophy, also physical sciences like astronomy. Um, even the story that the Mongols kind of come in and kill all the intellectuals, that's not really true either. So they certainly kill some intellectuals and displace many others, but they also hire intellectuals to be their court scientists and philosophers. Like there's a philosopher named Nasir Adin Atuzi, who was a commentator on the works of Ibn Sina, who was also an astronomer. And he actually had an astronomy, like an observatory built for him by a Mongol ruler. 
So he had a Mongol patron. Um, that's certainly not to take anything away from the staggering destruction and death that was caused by the initial Mongol invasions. I'm just saying that that event, though it was um, obviously tragic and like a, a tragedy on a global scale, really, it, it's not the case that that put an end to all philosophy and science. And in fact, philosophy and science keeps on going in a, quite a stable way right up until like the time of colonialism. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Doctor. And um, kind of before we conclude, I wanted to ask uh, if you could tell us something about some of the projects you're working on, uh, recommendations for to listeners interested in the field. Sure. Okay. Well, one thing I'm working on is actually directly related to what I was just talking about. So the the lack of decline. Uh, so I'm I've been doing this project for several years with a bunch of different colleagues who are postdocs here in Munich on um, the reception of Encina's philosophy in the 12th and 13th centuries. So we're looking at all the philosophers who were engaging with him both critically and positively in that period. And we're publishing source books with a publisher called Brill, where um, we have quotations from these works and kind of explanations of the philosophical debates that were going on. And the first of several volumes will, is one on metaphysics, which I did with a colleague named Fedor Benevich, who now teaches in Edinburgh. And that should be coming out like within the next year because we already sent it off to press. And then there will be further volumes on logic and on physics, natural philosophy, um, and hopefully philosophical Sufism as well. So that's one exciting thing I've been doing. I've also been running a project here on animals in philosophy of the Islamic world, which has been really interesting like animal ethics in Islam and uh, theories of animal minds in Islam. So that's something we've been doing for several years with a whole bunch of uh, colleagues here in my research team. Um, those are both projects that are coming to be to an end now. So we're kind of putting out all the publications. And so they'll be uh, appearing over the next couple of years uh, from both of those projects. Uh, I don't really have a big project beyond that, um, other than my podcast, which just keeps churning on. And in my podcast at the moment, I did, a, I did philosophy in Islam world quite a while ago. So that's already done. Um, at the moment, I'm covering Africana philosophy with a colleague named Chike Jeffers, which actually, actually is worth checking out even if you're only interested in philosophy in the Islamic world, because we actually had some episodes about Islamic philosophy in Africa uh, in that series. Uh, and in, the European tradition uncovering philosophy in the Reformation, which is quite interesting as well. Um, but I don't really have like a, a, a major monograph that I'm working on right now. I'm thinking I might write a book about this, one of the Christian philosophers I mentioned, one of the Aristotelians who lived in Baghdad in the 10th century, whose name is Yahya bin Adi. So we'll see if I go on to do that. And um, in terms of recommendation, recommendations, of course, I think the uh, I don't know, the online resources that you would suggest. Uh... Yeah, so there, there are, for, for one thing, well, actually, if I may take the liberty of plugging one other thing that I did myself, there, I also did the, um, for Oxford University Press, I did a little book called Very Short Introduction to Philosophy in the Islamic World. So that's a nice brief, like something that will take you through the whole story, um, you know, like, and you can read it in like two hours. Uh, and in fact, for the same series, I only just did the very short introduction to Encina. So that's like an overview of Encina and it's only 30,000 words. So that's a, like a quick overview of his work. Um, in terms of like online resources, apart from my podcast, 
um, I would definitely recommend the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which has pages on a number of philosophers from the Islamic world. So that's a good resource. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's journals that specialize in, if you want to get deeper, there's journals like, uh, there's a journal called Arabic Sciences and Philosophy. There's a journal called Stu uh, Studio Greco Arabica, which is on the translation movement um, and so on. So there, there's a, quite a few journals where you can find research on philosophy in the Islamic world as well. Um, there's an also something else that I've been somewhat involved with is uh, there's a series of books that are like encyclopedias of the history of philosophy. There's a series called the Überweg, which is published in Switzerland. But again, with Brill, um, I'm the editor of the English translation of that. So these are like big fat encyclopedias with um, all the bibliographical information you might need about philosophers from the Islamic world. And that's coming out in a whole series of uh, books that is edited by Ulrich Rudolf. So that's another good place to look. Excellent. Thank you so much again, Doctor. It was an absolute honor uh, to have you on today. And uh, with that, I'd like to conclude the episode. Okay, thanks so much for having me.